It's like good to be with you guys. And uh, yeah, it's always a privilege coming. Stellenbosch is one of my favorite towns, and I love what God's doing here with all these students and young and old, rich and poor, famous, infamous. It's a <laughs> it is a great joy, and it is special to have Ems with me. Uh, many of you don't. She had a kidney transplant recently, and has been able to start traveling with me again, which has been really awesome. So whenever I come into one of the churches that partner with us, I really often want to come in and just lay something of a building block into our hearts, of an understanding of, of our relationship to God and what does that look like as we flesh that out on the earth and amongst one another. But I really just felt to do something a little bit different. It's a little bit of a, sometimes I dish out steak, I think this is going to be a bit more like ice cream. And that it's just, I really felt the Lord wanted just to highlight an aspect of his relationship with us. Um, and there's so many lenses that God uses to talk about his relationship to man and man to him. And we, we cover those in various aspects. But the one I want to touch on today is the romantic God. The romantic God. And, and so that's what I'll call it, the romantic God. And I'm going to start in the book of Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2 and 4. And as we, we dig into this together, it, this really is a picture of King Solomon and a young woman who falls in love with him. And so the book is this relationship that kind of develops. And they, it's kind of like they do this love poetry over each other. But what we don't often realize is that Song of Songs is really, as much as it is King Solomon and a young woman, it's actually a picture of God's people and God. And so there is this analogy, there's this kind of like... Uh, thing that we see about how God feels about us in a romantic way. And I don't know if we think of God as being romantic, but remember we are made in his image and in his likeness. And so there's this beautiful picture of God's love and how it fleshes itself out towards us. And so what I want to do is we're going to look at this, we're going to look into a Jewish wedding and just see how the Lord in some ways marries, or he does marry himself to us and us to him, and hopefully out of that We'll see where it goes. So in Song of Songs, I think it's chapter 1, verse 2 and 4, eh? not 2 and 4. It says, um, chapter 1, verse 2 to 4. It says, um, I'll read it. All right, let's go there. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. It's a profound little kind of romantic little thing in the middle of your Bible of this romance between a man and a woman. And, um, and again, as I've said, it really is a picture of how God feels and acts towards us. In fact, the Bible says this very clearly in the New Testament, in Ephesians 5, verse 31 and 32. If you could put that up for me. We're going to use a lot of scripture, which is I always try and do. Ephesians 5, have you got that one? Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. This is what it says. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. That's marriage. And the two will become one flesh. And then verse 32 says, this is a profound mystery but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Who here doesn't love weddings? I remember I was married. We were married in 94. And I remember standing at the front, nervous. And then in that moment, you know, she appears. The song starts, everyone stands, and she appears. And normally, you've got these guys that will wrestle crocodiles for fun, and they stand there crying like little girls because, because they, they, they see... The the object of, of their love. They see the one that they love. And there is something of this moment. And I think every time we go to a wedding, we kind of, it's almost like you fall in love again. It's like, oh my goodness, this is such a beautiful thing, this love between a man and a woman. But we don't often think of that love as a shadow of a far more important love and a far deeper love of the love that God has for his church, for us. And so Paul here is writing in Ephesians about this, how it is between a man and a woman, literally in marriage. And then he says, but I'm actually painting a picture 
of how God feels about you. I'm talking about Christ and the church. And so what I want to do is really dig into a wedding and, and how God goes through the process of finding you and myself to be a wife, a bride for himself. And what does he do in terms of marriage and, and those things? I was just chatting with Ryan. I'm sure most of you know her. And her, her um, um, brother, Nick, who was in one of the congregations here in Stellenbosch, is about to get married in the UK. And, um, sorry, in America, in California. And um, there's this huge preparation going on for this day that's going to be happening really, really soon. Um, and so my, I heard this morning my sister, who's actually in America at the moment, and her husband are actually supposed to be sorting flowers. And I heard that. I don't know how that's going to work coming from South Africa. But uh, there is a sense that there's a lot of work that goes into a wedding. There is a lot of work that God does to bring us into a wedding relationship, a marriage relationship with him. So maybe just start. I sometimes wonder why, actually I don't. I don't wonder about this. I get it. I get that God didn't make us robots. He could have. He could have just made us to do exactly what he wanted to do. But because God, by nature, is love, love is something that's given, it's not taken. And so what God does when he creates man is he gives man freedom. He says, I, I am love, and I want to love you. I want to have this incredible relationship with you, more meaningful than a husband to a wife. But I'm going to give you freedom. And I think for me, one of the wonders of a wedding day is when I stood in front and saw MC standing, coming down the aisle, I, the, the, the wonder that she'd chosen to be with me and that I'd chosen her. Out of all the people on this planet, she was the one and I was the one. And it was something that we gave each other. I couldn't demand it. I couldn't force it. It was something that she gave. And this is something that God wants with us. God does not want to force us to love him. He wants to show us who he is. And then he wants us, hopefully, to respond in love and to choose him. The big challenge is there's a lot of, well, there's a lot of people on the planet, aren't there? And there's a lot of things that, get in, that in some ways become things that grab our heart, that we live for and we love. The Bible tells us we can, we can love money more than we love him. We can love ourselves more than we love him. We can love fame. We can, there's so many different things. Sin in, in all of its facets uh, draws us, and in some ways we give ourselves to them. And so all of these things in some ways become like a husband to us, and we live to love them. One of the great loves in my life as a young man was surfing the ocean. At 10 years old, I caught my first wave. And an addiction started. It's, I still surf today. I'm 53 years old. And, um, but it grabbed me, and it became something that I loved. Actually, all of us have got something on this earth that we love deeply. Can we even be a person? Do you know that you can love a person more than you love God? But God wants to be our first love. In fact, he says in the, when he writes to man, he says the most important commandment, the most important thing is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And so God reaches out to us and he says, I love you, but I want to see you respond to me. I want you to love me too. Okay? The problem is none of us actually love him. The Bible makes that very clear. We love created things instead of the creator. We fall in love with temporal things, momentary things, and we don't actually see him for who he is, and we don't love him like we should. And so I hope you've got these scriptures. I might have changed my note. I think I sent them to you. In Hosea chapter 2, verse 2, have you got that? Can you try and find it? Sorry, man. Did you give her the scriptures? Kala is the worst administrator on the planet, so she probably didn't even give her the scriptures. <laughs> In Isaiah, and, and, and the picture of Isaiah is again this incredible picture of how God feels about his people. And Isaiah was actually a prophet in the Old Testament who loved God. And at one point God says to Isaiah, Isaiah, I want you to marry a prostitute. And that's not the kind of thing that most of us would want to do. A woman who's given herself to so many other lovers or so many other men. 
at this point, so he, he finds her and he loves her and she becomes a wife to him. Um, and, um, and then, being a broken woman, she goes back to her brokenness and starts sleeping again with men while she's married to this prophet, Hosea. And so the book of Hosea is this kind of difficult book to work through because you see this guy who genuinely is a good guy, who loves God and who wants to be holy, and he's got this absolutely broken wife. And she keeps doing what she shouldn't do. At one point, she sells herself back into slavery while he's trying to love her, and she literally becomes owned by men who are using her as a sex slave, basically. But this is something she's chosen. This is something she's wanted. And God keeps saying to him, Hosea, go find your wife and love her again. And that's really the premise of the book. And then he says this, Hosea, you're a picture of how I feel. You're a picture of what it's like for me. Because I loved people that didn't love me. I love those who should have given themselves to me and kept themselves for me. But instead of loving me and keeping themselves for me, they have loved other gods. They have loved other things. And so they've turned away. And so in the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, verse 2, God writes, and this is actually God speaking through Hosea. And it's about God in his relationship. And it says... um, Let's jump on that second verse. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face. It's talking about Israel. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face. And you've got this picture of God. Of, come stand next to me, babes. You've got this picture of God and his people. And instead of her having eyes only for him, every time there's a good-looking suitor around, she gazes upon him with lust and with love. I'm not looking anywhere now. <laughs> I'm looking there. <laughs> this, I'm using it as an illustration here. There is a sense that, can you imagine every time we went out, I saw her looking at other men with longing. And then he says this, remove the, remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. In other words, God's saying, your body was made for me. You were supposed to be intimate with me. But instead of being faithful to me and intimate with me, you've actually, you keep looking at other lovers. You keep giving of yourself sexually to other men. And this word of sexually is this analogy, this picture of what it feels like to God when we love things more than we love him. It's like a husband whose wife has been unfaithful. And so the book of Hosea is full of this Torment as God keeps coming back to his people, and his people keep turning away. And then Isaiah 2, verse 14 to 15, God starts off, and, and I, I almost love the humanness of this. It's like God is coming down to our level to help us understand what it feels like for him. And so he starts off with, I just want to, I don't want, I almost want to just remove you. I almost don't want to be with you because you've hurt me so badly. But then he responds and he says this. Therefore, I'm now going to allure her. This is, this, this is a few verses on from let her remove that look from her face. Now, I'm going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert, and I will speak tenderly to her. There, I will give her back... Uh, we're jumping around. There, I will give her back her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Accor a door of hope. There, she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. So you've got God saying, I'm going to take her apart, and I'm going to allure her. I'm going to draw her with my love. And then a little bit later, in verse 19 and 20, he says this, 2 verse 19 and 20, keeping on your toes. I will betroth you to me forever. In other words, I will join yourself to me in marriage forever. I will betroth you in righteousness, in justice, and in love and compassion. Verse 20. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. So God looks at every human being on the planet. And the Bible says there is none, not even one, that have chosen him. Every single one of us were made for him, made to be intimate with him. But from the time of our birth, we have turned away. We have given ourselves 
to things that are not him. And to God, it's as though it's, it's like the one I love giving herself away, not to me. Has anyone ever, has anyone been in a relationship where your spouse has been unfaithful? It's a terrible thing. But now God is the one reflecting the pain and saying, this is how it is for me with my people. And so even though we like that because God is love, like Hosea, he says to Hosea, Hosea, go and take your wife and win her back. And so God starts this incredible journey of trying to win the world, win you actually, back to him. Because he made you, he formed you, and he formed you to love him, and he loves you. All right. And so here's how he does it. He uses the picture of a Jewish wedding. And we're going to run through what a Jewish wedding does. It's a little bit different from our weddings. Um, but we're going to see how God fulfills the Jewish wedding to try and find a people for himself, to betroth a people in faithfulness to himself. And the first thing that happened in a Jewish wedding, and I still think it should be like a today because I've got a 17-year-old daughter, is the father decides who will marry Alfred <laughs> Jack has got this joke love is blind, marriage is the eye opener. So fathers choose better. And in fact, funny enough, even in India today, which is I think the largest population in, in the planet, is in that nation. Um, and still today, in fact, in the churches in India today, the pastors choose who will marry who. Quite interesting. I think we just bring that one back. But this picture of a father who actually chooses a bride for his son. And so fathers would meet and work out who's going to marry who yeah. And obviously you hope your father's going to be one of those dads that says, son or daughter, is this, is, this, is this what you would like? But there is a sense that within the culture they understood the wisdom of the parents was probably far wiser than the, the, the wild zealous zeal and passion of the young. Because passion burns out, and that's where love's got to last. And so, in John 6, verse 44, we see here Jesus is the one to whom we're going to be married. We're going to be betrothed to him. He's going to come. We read in, in, in Hosea. He will establish faithfulness. So Jesus is the one we're supposed to be married to. And he says this. Jesus says this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. Which means... The father looks across the earth to find a bride for his son. Jesus didn't choose you, actually. The father chooses who'll be married to the son. And so he looks, and being perfect in all of his ways, he scours the earth to find that bride, to find the one that will ultimately be betrothed and married to his son in faithfulness. And so the first thing we see within the Trinity is God starting to submit himself to the Jewish wedding because he wants to use it as a picture of how he loves us and how he'll win us, betroth us to himself. Then normally what happened is the fathers would have this discussion and they would say, okay, this is it. And then normally they would ask the bride, is this, is, do you consent? Will you? And this is seen in Genesis 24, verse 57 and 58. Um, you didn't give her the notes. <laughs> color. <laughs> I want to just say, Kala's an, a good Bible teacher, but somebody please help him with admin. He's, got... <laughs> He's worse than me, and I'm pretty bad. <laughs> so what happens in this story, and you actually see this happening within early Judaism or early Israel, um, Rebecca and Isaac are going to get married. And so... The father sends his servant to go and find a bride, and he finds this young woman, Rebecca. And so, you know, there's this whole thing of how it works out. And in Genesis 24, 57, 58, they call the girl at one point, and they ask her. Let's call the girl and ask her about it. So they called Rebecca and asked her, will you go with this man? Now, she's going with a servant to go and be married to her future husband. She hasn't actually seen him yet. But will you go with this man? And she said, I will. I will. And so there is something of the bride being asked, will you go with this man? God is reaching out to each of us. 
And in a sense, he, he, will you go with this man? Now, here's the, yeah. We're going to end there because I want to ask you later, will you go with this man, with this God, as you begin to see how this works? Um, and again, it's, it's like that for us too, isn't it? You didn't become a Christian because God made you do it. You became a Christian because the servant of God, the Holy Spirit, came to you and said, he's giving her notes now, thanks, Carla. <laughs> you, became a, you became a Christian because the servant of God, the Holy Spirit, came to you and drew you to Christ. And in some ways, you were sitting in a meeting somewhere, or you were having somebody talking to you, or you are reading a Bible, and the Spirit of God came to you and literally said this, will you go with God? Will you choose God? I said, I will. I choose him. Many of you here said, I will. And you chose him. And so you responded to the servant who came to you to draw you to the son on behalf of the father. You're starting to see how God works. Um, then there's a bride price, la bola, basically. <laughs> I think we'll bring that back to you because I've only got a daughter. In, in, in the culture of the day, children were precious. In some ways, you know, uh, they would help the household, they would serve within the family. And so in some ways, the family is going to lose a daughter to a new family. They're going to get the benefit of this new member that's going to participate. And so there would be a bride price, much like in African culture. There would be a labola that would be decided, an amount that would be decided beforehand. How much, how much will you reimburse? How much will you give for this bride? And uh, we see this in Genesis 24, 53, again with Rebecca. Then the servant brought out gold and silver jewelry and articles of clothing. She just said, I will. And the servant brings out this gold and jewelry, articles of clothing, and gave them to Rebecca. But he also gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. In effect, what they're doing is they are now paying the bride price. Did you know that there was a price for you to be married to God? And the price wasn't silver and gold. The price was, and we read this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Don't you know that you, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. There is a sense that there was a price paid for you. What was it? Not to silver or gold or precious jewels. The price paid was life. 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 The Bible says that we were all children of the devil. Sons and daughters of Satan. Every human being that's not connected to God is by default married and under Satan. And the price that that father, the price was life. And so what did God do? God came and gave his life. Because that's how much you cost. That's how far he was willing to go. So that you could be reconciled. And that you could be his. That he would, allure, he, would, he would, in a sense, allure you with his love. So the scriptures speak about how we love him. But actually, he first loved us. All right. Then once that's gone, they, they finish the first part. The Jewish wedding is made up of two, two ceremonies, two parts. Ours have one, really, but the Jewish wedding is two parts. Uh, and, and so the first part ends then with uh, actually, um, it's regarded as a betrothal. You'd be regarded at the, by this point, okay, you're gonna, what they'll do is they'll seal this with a drink. I'll look at this now. They'll seal this with a drink of wine. Chosen, agreed, labola, bride price paid. And then that part of the ceremony is solemnized with the drinking of wine. And at that point, the marriage is regarded as a marriage, but it's not yet a marriage. Legally, in Jewish culture, it is regarded as though you were already married, even though you weren't. And so the only way to break out of that at, at that point is to divorce, even though you actually, you're not actually living with each other yet. That's only going to happen in maybe a year, maybe two years' time. The, the, the first part of the ceremony has been done. And um, what they would then do is they would seal it with a drink. 
And it sealed off that first part of the contract or the covenant that they were going to be making. Um, and there's two, twice they're going to drink here and then on the wedding day, on the actual day when we get married. Do you know that we're not yet fully married to Christ, eh? We're in the betrothal period. The first part of the contract, we haven't joined it. The wedding feast of the Lamb is still to come. So there is a feast being prepared right now. We're in this marriage relationship with them, but it's not fully consummated. Okay? And so what they would do is they would, uh, they would literally take out wine and they would share wine out of one glass. And there'd be a sense of this seals off the first part of the, of the contract, or the covenant. And in 1 Corinthians 11.25, Jesus said this with his disciples just before he was crucified. Uh, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You're going to see how this all makes sense just now. This is the cup of the covenant. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. So he literally says to, to us, this is the cup of my, this cup seals off this first part of the agreement. And it's interesting in Matthew 26, 29, Jesus actually says this, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine again from now until that day, the final day, the wedding day, when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus drinks wine, and the last wine he will taste, because there is wine in heaven, you know that, eh? Yeah, you guys are Stellenbosch. Of course there's wine in, in heaven. I mean, would it be heaven without wine? Jesus says he drinks the cup. And he says, I'm not going to drink again until the day that our marriage is finally consummated. On the wedding day, the second part, when the contract is finally brought to its fullness, on that day I'll drink again. And that will be when you're with me in my father's house. So for 2,000 years, Jesus hasn't touched wine. But he will. Because the wedding feast of the Lamb will come. And there, he will drink wine. And that will be the second time he drinks. To const- as part of consummating the marriage covenant. Interesting, eh? And in fact, interesting when we drink, when we break bread, we remind ourselves of that covenant that he's made with us. Then the couple in the Jewish wedding, they were legally married, but they weren't actually allowed to live together yet. They weren't allowed to touch each other physically. And so what they would do is then the bride would then go back to her father and stay in his house. And the son would go back to his father's house. And, he would, and there would be a time of preparation, getting them ready. And so the groom would go back and he would have to, in Jewish culture, what they would do is, he, you know, today you leave and you go somewhere else. But in, in, in Jewish weddings, the son would build on a part of the house for his family. And so he would literally start to prepare a part of the house for him, his bride, and his family. And he would start preparing rooms, and he'd be taught what it is to be a husband, to be a provider, so that he could care for her. And Jesus said this in John 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. So what's Jesus doing right now? Like a Jewish groom, he's gone back to his father's house and he's busy preparing a place for us in his father's house. Uh, The Jewish young man would learn what it is to be a husband. In some ways, there's a time of preparation. The young lady who's going to get married would also go back to her father's house, the bride, and she would learn how to be a wife. And in this culture, she would have learned how to sew and cook and be a woman, which is an important thing to know. What is a woman? Uh, People are confused about that today. How would she please her husband? How would she be ready for him on that day? And so both of them would go into a time of preparation where they're going from children now to adults. And now they need to learn what it is and be prepared for the moment. And we're in that space right now. We are being prepared for our groom. And what the, what the young lady would do is she would actually light a lamp and she would keep it burning night and day in her window. And I love this picture because what would happen is I imagine, you must imagine now you're going to get married. You don't know when it's going to happen, but you know she's the one. And so, you know, you're living in a, in a town somewhere and the young man, you can't go on dates. No such thing. Your first kiss would probably be your wedding day which is, I think, awesome. 
And so what he would do is he would come and he would look. And if she had a lamp in her window, it was a sign to him and to everyone else, I'm taken. And the lamp burning was an indicator, my love is still here for you. And so she would trim her lamp. She would fill it with oil all the time to make sure that that lamp burns. So every time as he's working and she's working, he would come out and look. And then he'd see the lamp and he'd go, oh, she's waiting for me. She's preparing herself for me. And Jesus says in Matthew 5 verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Uh, let's go verse 15 probably. Uh, Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and give, it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and worship your Father in heaven. How do you show your Lord, your Jesus? that you're waiting for him. You shine your lamp. How do you shine your lamp? Your good deeds. As you prepare yourself, as you begin to do things for God out of love, as you learn what it is that he loves, not what you love, you shine a lamp. And so the Lord looks down from heaven and he goes, my bride is getting herself ready. And I think every good deed is recorded because he knows that this is an indicator of the love of the bride for the groom. Let your light shine. Let your light shine. It shows the world that you belong to him. It shows the world that the world can't have you. You're not giving yourself to other lovers. You've kept yourself for the one who loves you. It's interesting do you know that in this period, do you remember the story of Jesus? Mary, um, his mother, is betrothed, or they actually married legally. The first part of the covenant has been done, but then she's not yet living with Joseph. And then she's found to be with child. Holy Spirit comes upon her. And so the Bible tells us Joseph decided, I'm going to divorce her quietly. He's still in that part of the betrothal. He thinks she's been unfaithful. She hasn't been unfaithful. The Lord God has put the Messiah, the, the one who's coming into her womb. And so she's in this period. But, but there is a danger always that even in that, that period of time that we can be unfaithful. And so Paul writes to the church in um, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2 to 3, and he says this, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. And so here you've got this picture of actually Paul, who's now part of the preparation, being so scared that the beloved, the, beloved the, br the bride, will not stay pure for her groom and that she will give herself to other gods and be unfaithful. She'll commit sexual immorality. Sexual, uh, in a sense, it'll be a br falling away and not remaining pure and chaste for her groom. All right. And then, the son in a Jewish marriage doesn't decide when he'll fetch his wife. Because I think if he did, he would have just done it straight up. I, I, I remember when we, actually meeting Ems for me, I knew, um, I'd prayed and I knew the Lord had given it to me when I met her. And so I would have married her that week. But her family wouldn't let me. I had to wait 10 months. That's from meeting her. Um, because there's a sense of, if you're the one, let's just, let's go there. Um, but in the Jewish culture, the father decides when it happens. And so that Jesus says this very clearly um, in Matthew 24, verse 36. No one knows about the day or the hour when Christ will return to fetch his bride. Not even the, the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. So here's the thing. Jesus is doing what right now? He's preparing a place for you. Now, you've got to wonder how amazing that's going to be because it took him six days to make everything we see. And we see a fallen reflection of what it was because it's fallen from its glory. But in six days, God made everything we know. And he's taken 2,000 years and he hasn't come back yet. So what is heaven going to be like as the Lord prepares a place? for us as his bride, okay?
And he doesn't know when the day is going to be. All he knows is get ready. And neither does she know when the day is going to be. And Jesus would often say, keep your lamps burning. Keep yourselves ready because it's going to happen when you least expect it. It's going to happen when you're not ready for it. And so the young, the, we, the church, are getting ourselves ready all the time for that moment. And then the Bible says the Father will sound, this is the day. And it happens very quickly when it happens. It goes literally like Dad wakes up one morning and decides she's ready, he's ready. The wedding now can, can move into its second phase. And we read in Revelation 19 verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. Now we're looking forward to the day that the wedding, the final consummation will happen, and his bride has made herself ready. And so you've got this picture of us waiting and him waiting, and at some point, the Father says, now. And then the angels go to draw those who are his to be with him forever. And he comes with a celebration to draw his beloved bride. And then there is the wedding feast and the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Are you ready for him? If he had to come back today, are you ready? Are you everything that he's looking for now? In Matthew 25 verse 6 we read, at midnight, the cry rang out, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And this, this is literally a picture of Jesus talking about how it's going to be, it's midnight. It's like, who's awake at midnight? And the picture is this, when it seems like it's not going to happen today, when it seems like, okay, this day's over, we're going into, at midnight, the cry goes out, he's coming, are you ready? And he'll send his angels out to the four corners of the earth. And they will draw those. In fact, what they would actually do, he would come, but ahead of him, his best men and his friends would run ahead of him. And they would literally kidnap her. They would literally run into her father's house. I mean, it's, in some ways, the father knew, they know what's happening now. And they would pick her up with whatever she could carry and carry her to be with him. And you've got this picture of the, the second coming when the Lord, the trumpet sounds, the father said, now, and the friends, the angels go out to gather the bride from across the earth to draw them to be with him. And we'll meet up with him in the clouds as the wedding feast of the day will start to be consummated. And that will be the day when finally the second part of the covenant is actually solemnized and sealed. She must be ready. And because it's taken long, don't think it's not going to happen soon. Keep your lamp burning. Then there's a part of the ceremony that's quite strange for us. It almost feels like, ooh. Because the, the wedding feast is this huge thing. And in some ways, one of the things that's very important is that the, 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 the young woman and the young man need to have kept themselves pure for one another. In a sense, in our culture, we sleep around. In our culture, it's like test drive. But actually, that's not the way it's supposed to be. We were made for one person. All of us were made for one human and we were made only for God. And so actually on that day, there was the sense of their purity was actually was, was solemnized their marriage. Marriage is a covenant. It's actually a blood covenant. It's not a contract. And it's a blood covenant. The blood covenant in, 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 in Hebrew thinking was this. An agreement is, okay, I agree to sell my car for you for X amount. And da, da, da. But we can break agreements. But a covenant is in blood. And what that means is if I don't come to my end of the deal... My life is forfeit. Okay. Marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract. Okay. So when you get married, you're saying, I covenant with this person till death us do part, that I'll be faithful to you and I'll be yours for, it, for as long as I'm alive. Okay. And what would happen on the first night of the Jewish wedding is everyone's celebrating and there's wine and there's celebration and then the couple at some point, there would be a little room prepared for them and they would go out into the little room and there'd be a satin sheet on a bed. And they would make love for the first time. This is part of the ceremony. And because the girl had kept herself pure, her hymen would break. God put that in her because it would seal the covenant. And as her hymen breaks, as he penetrates her for the first time, she bleeds. And she bleeds out onto the sheet. And then, to solemnize before everyone else that they had kept themselves pure, the blanket, the sheet, would be taken off the bed, wrapped up, and brought to the father of the bride. And this was a sign, actually, 
that this was solemnized. This was now a covenant in blood. The problem is, none of us have kept ourselves pure. None of us have kept ourselves solely for God. We are the prostitute in Hosea. We're the ones who have loved other gods. And so without that blood, technically, the marriage isn't consummated. Technically, the groom could say, actually, this is not a true marriage because she wasn't pure. She should have kept herself for me. And so the marriage would have been annulled. But God so loved the world. So what he does is Jesus comes and on the cross, what does he do? He sheds his blood. And his blood is innocent, perfect blood. And so as blood's pouring out of his side, as it's pouring out of his face, pouring out onto the sheet, literally, do you remember the grave cloth story? They wrap him in cloth. And the blood on the cloth was a sign that he had provided the purity that the wife, the, the young lady, could not. And that's us. We could not be pure. We were not pure. But he gave his blood and so made this relationship a covenant relationship that he would now seal off this wedding between us and him. If you're taking notes, you can read about that, that part of the ceremony in De- Deuteronomy 22, 15, and 17, but I won't go there now. And so Matthew 26, 28, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus provides the blood to seal the covenant. All right. And then the Bible says, how many of you know the the bride dresses in in what color clothes? What? What is white a symbol of? Purity. Remember this, we were impure, but now the Lord has provided purity for us. And so the the bride appears in white. And the Bible uses this picture over and over again. In Revelation 7 verse 14, we see um, we see the ones, Revelation 7 14, have I got the wrong scripture? Okay, I've got the wrong scripture. Find it for me if you can. Uh, it's got Google. This is what it says. Um, this is my bad, Edmund. <laughs> it talks about the ones coming out of the tribulation. It talks about those that go through to the end. And it says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, the very purity that we will wear on the wedding day is not because of us. It's because He provided the purity. He provided the blood. So that even though we were the prostitute, the immoral, the one bound in pornea, if you look at the Septuagint, which is written in the Greek, it uses the word pornea for, um, for actually sexual immorality. Um, We're the ones who are impure, but we get given white robes. Why? Because he provides what we can't. And then in Revelation 19, verse 6 to 8, hopefully you got this one right, or I got this one right. Uh, 19, verse 8, not 6. Oh, sorry, 6 to 8, right. Go back. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude. This is a wedding feast. Like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And then it says this, Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. White linen is given us to wear. Because we don't have white linen of our own. And the righteous acts that actually secures us in the marriage isn't our righteous acts. It's his righteous acts that secures us in this relationship to God. We should come dressed in our own white robes, but none of us actually deserve white robes. But we're given purity that we did not earn and that we, did not, we don't deserve to wear. And so in this, on that final day, this marriage is finally consummated. They'll drink wine again. And Jesus said, the next time I drink this is when we're together in my father's house. And there'll be this wild wild party in heaven and finally we'll be joined to God this romantic God and the picture that God wants us to see is what you feel for a human being that person that you would give yourself to in marriage is a shadow 
of what he wants your relationship to be like with him. It's a profound thing, eh? God loves you. I was thinking on my phone, I should have actually given this, I thought about it in worship. On my phone, if I open it, you can't all see, but there's a sort of a third of my face. But the face on my phone is my wife. Uh, let me open that again. It's my wife. Every time I look at my phone to open it, there she sits in the middle of my screen. Because I love her. If God had a soul phone, your face would be on his screen. God loves you. God loves you. I heard one, one author say this. God shows his love for you because he sends flowers every spring and a sunrise every morning. God shows his love for you. Shows in all creation because you're the apple of his eye. you what he loves. you what he has waited for ages to be married to, the bride of, of Christ. And then in Isaiah, I'm nearly finished. God says this. He's talking about his relationship to his people, and he says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? He's going to use a strong figure of speech now. You know that what a mom feels for her child, that deep love? Though she may forget you, I will not forget you. In other words, even the love that a mother has for a child doesn't compare with the love that I have for you. Even if she would forget somehow, I never can forget he says this, see I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls or your protection are ever before me. God has literally engraved you into the palm of his hands as a reminder it's, it's of his love for you. And every time the Lord, the only scars in heaven are his. Every time the Lord looks at his scars, he thinks I've provided for my bride. And you are the bride. If you hear what the Father's reaching out to you with, and you sense that God is calling you to be with His. Now, the question I have is this. Not one of us deserves to be married to Him. Prophets would say over and over again, there is no one righteous. No, not even one. They've all together turned away and become worthless. Every single one of us has loved the wrong things. Every single one of us has been unfaithful to God. There is no one here that has truly kept themselves for God. Because the Bible says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All means all. Some of you think, well, I don't sin that badly. I can tell you this. If my wife is intimate with another man once, it's a very big deal to me. Have you kept yourself 100% pure for God? Have you loved him the way he should be loved? Have you loved no other suitor? Nothing in creation that you've loved? Or have you, like he says all of us have, actually loved the stuff we shouldn't have? And so there should be the separation. There should be the break. In, the, in fact, in, in a Jewish marriage, even in the betrothal stage, if you were found sleeping with someone who wasn't your betrothed, you would have been stoned to death. That's how, remember, it's a covenant. You're saying, in effect, I'm sealing this with my life, with my blood. So the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, the consequence of not being pure, is you and I deserve to be separated from him for eternity. Because there's no one who's loved God. No one has actually put God first. But then you see God saying, but I'm going to woo you. Though your sins are scarlet, though they're bright red, I'm going to woo you back to me. And I'm going to provide everything that's needed so that you can come into relationship with me. So that you can be secured in my love for you. I will betroth you to me in my faithfulness. But the question is this. Will you, like Rebecca say, Yes, because in some ways, even me here today as a servant is reaching out to you and saying, will you go with this man? Or will you keep on loving your lovers? Will you choose God? Will you choose the one who made you from dust? Who knows how many hairs are on your head? Or will you choose created things to love? 
And so I want to give you an opportunity to choose him. And I can tell you this. God is not distant in this moment. God is not hiding in this moment. God is waiting literally on the edge of his throne. Why? Because God loves you. He formed you from dust. He formed you in your mother's womb. And he loves you. How many of you have seen pictures on Facebook? On the knee. And she's standing with a ring. I said I do. We have to say I do to God. Jesus actually says at one point, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear me knocking and you open the door, I will come in. But you must open the door. And so I want to ask you the question, will you choose to be God's? Will you respond to the love of God? And so what I want us to do is I want to close eyes and bow our, bow our heads quickly, just do that. Yeah, my wife wants to share something. I just um, felt this morning as Andrew was sharing, yo, I just felt such a spirit of urging coming from the Lord, like a longing in his heart, like how I long to gather you, like a mother hen gather her chickens. And the scripture the Lord gave me was this, in Jeremiah 2 verse 31, you of this generation, consider the word of the Lord. Have I been a desert to Israel or a land of darkness to my people? Why do my people say, we are free to roam. We will come to you no more. And God wants us to come to him. And that free to roam is anything that we put, um, anything that we cling to more than him, anything that we pursue more than him, anything where we put our comfort in more than him, anything that we put our worth in more than what he thinks of us. And the Lord is saying today, come free, come to me. Come willingly and free. Don't roam. Come to me.